0: You're listening to West Coast Water Justice, where we talk about water in the western United States. I'm your host, Natalie Kilmer. And in this episode, we interview Godua Tume and Jesus Alonzo from Clean Water Action. We learn about water insecurity in the Central Valley and what it's like living or attending school next door to an oil pump jack. We also hear about California's legal practice of watering food crops with chemical and radioactive waste water. All right, let's get started. Can you each state your names?
1: Jesus Alonso.
2: My name is Godo Atsume. Godo, could you tell
0: us a little bit about Clean Water Action?
2: Absolutely. Thank you for having us here. Clean Water Action is an environmental justice organization. It was founded in 1972 following the Clean Water Act. So our founder worked closely on the Clean Water Act. We have about 13 offices across the country, and primarily what we work on is we work to ensure that marginalized and low-income communities have access to a safe environment, health, a good quality of life. We work on different campaigns. As you would hear today, we have an oil and gas campaign. We also have safe drinking water campaigns. We also work on preventing health-harming toxics. In everyday products. We also work on a Rethink Plastics program across the country. So we we basically do a lot of environmental justice work with the goal of ensuring that low income communities are represented and have a safe environment. Can you tell us a little bit
0: about yourself and how you got involved in this work?
2: Absolutely. So my name again is Godo Atsume. I am originally from Nigeria and I like to say I've always been interested in water. I grew up very close to a river and uh, at some point saw that river get contaminated from agricultural runoff. There were agricultural farms very close by. And so I got really interested in being part of the solution and just making sure there was still fish in the water and safe drinking water for people and you know, for people to be able to go swim. And so I'd like to say I went to school to study how I could provide that solution. I have my bachelor's in water resources and environmental engineering, and I have my master's from Tufts in sustainable water management. I have a total of close to 10 years work experience, and all the roles I've you know, worked on have been focused on drinking water in different aspects. So I worked in Boston. I worked with the Massachusetts Environmental Protection Department. And in that role, I I worked on the regulatory side. And then I also worked with a local nonprofit in Massachusetts, ensuring that there was safe drinking water to the community. So it's sort of been the thread of my life. Two years ago, I moved to California and started working at Clean Water Action. And what I do at Clean Water Action, so I am a senior policy analyst, and I work on our water program. I lead our groundwater work. I also lead our agriculture work. So primarily what I do is identifying low-income communities of color. Here they're called disadvantaged communities or severely disadvantaged communities and trying to find policies, working on policies with different advocates and the states on how these communities can have safe drinking water long-term, but also in the interim. Um so a lot of my work is focused on groundwater at the moment, but that is the goal to work with these communities, highlight their voices. Ensure that they're on the decision making table and basically have safe drinking water in these communities.
0: That sounds amazing. And I'm really excited to learn about all this from you both. Jesus, can you share a little bit about your background and how you got involved in this work as well?
1: Yeah, definitely. Again, my name is uh, Jesus Alonso. I am the current community organizer for our gas program with Clean Water Action. We've been working in Kern County since 2014, primarily with fence-line communities that bear the brunt impact of oil and gas production in order to address the health and environmental disparities that their families (laughs) face. How I got involved with Clean Water Action, Kern County is where I grew up. Kern County is my home. And growing up here, I saw a lot of the environmental and health disparities that I honestly did not know were not normal. You know, as a kid, we'd get random nosebleeds, random headaches. So many kids with asthma, you know, just struggling to breathe every day. And I honestly, I didn't, I didn't know it was not normal, you know, until after, after high school, some community groups told us that our, our lived experience was abnormal and that there were actual resources out there to help support communities like ours so that we could live a a better life. And so that really, that really called out to me and the ability to bring resources to my community called out to me, and that's what got me on the journey to becoming a community organizer. And through seeing the impacts that some environmental organizations had in our community, I decided to get involved in the environmental work.
0: Wow, okay. So I have a couple follow-up questions, just because I keep hearing that they're trying to erode the Clean Water Act, and it sounds like that's something your organization has really been involved with. Maybe you could tell us what's at stake with that. I'm also wondering how the referendum in California could play into maybe helping some of the communities that are so close to fossil fuel industry infrastructure.
2: I can take a stab at that, and then he says feel free to chime in. So I think um, what you're referring to, the Supreme Court made a decision recently about wetlands, and the Clean Water Act, like I said, passed in 1972. And before that, there was really no regulation in place to protect waters across the United States. And this is a time when industry was discharging most or all of their waste into rivers and streams. And so this act basically protects navigable waters across the United States. Where we are right now, it's been 50 years in, we've sort of made a lot of progress to protect surface water, but not just surface water, also groundwater resources in the United States. The recent events that happened at the Supreme Court is pushing back regulations for wetlands and protection for wetlands. And at Clean Water Action, we put out a statement opposing that basically wetlands serve as a support system for our ecosystem, and they need to be there and they need to be protected. So currently in California, I know that over 90% of them will be lost. But basically, the Clean Water Act, I think, is also really framed on the idea that Human beings and environments need to be protected. We need to sustain the earth that we live in. That's sort of like the goal of what we do.
1: Thank you. And then the referendum, that's the 3,200 foot setback?
0: Yeah, I'm wondering about that because I hear it's going to be on the ballot and we've been talking about it on the podcast. But if that is in place, could that help the community you grew up in or?
1: Absolutely. You know, having seeing the oil industry put money down to challenge the 3,200 foot setback, something that our communities, our low income communities of color have fought for for years. And the industry could just put money down and get immediately the sufficient signatures. Well, it's outrageous. A bit of history on that is that, you know, our communities since I think 2015 approximately have been fighting for a setback to protect our homes and our families from the impacts of oil and gas production, like I mentioned before, there's the the nosebleeds, the headaches, asthma. But what we see a lot in our families also is a number of cardiovascular and pulmonary issues, including a, a high rate of cancer in our families. All this because of our proximity to oil and gas production. And so, when we finally get a 3,200 foot setback, it absolutely would help because we know firsthand the impact it has on our on our families. Currently, we do not have a setback. And so we see pump jacks right up against some of our elementary schools. Wow. Yeah, we have a pump jack wedged between a playground, an apartment building, and some houses from a neighborhood. And it's constantly disturbing the families there.
0: Would you want to tell us what community this is in?
1: This is in the city of Arvin. People who live in the apartment can't even put things on their walls because it would be falling down from the vibration of the pump jack.
0: Oh, my God. Wow.
1: Yeah. And to add on to that, actually, just recently, because the Lamont-Arvin community was approved to become an AB617CSC community uh, steering committee, we were actually finally able to get agencies to work with us. In identifying areas of concern, uh, polluters of concern. And they actually went out, investigated what were thought to be abandoned wells, and they found that 27 of those wells were still leaking methane. So 40% of the wells they went to go investigate were leaking methane.
0: And these are supposed to be capped wells?
1: These are wells that the agencies had noted as potentially abandoned wells, and then the process would be once identified as abandoned wells, then it, it could start the capping process. Wow. The current update on that is that 11 of those wells are still leaking. And that's because the operator has indicated that they have no intentions of repairing the leak.
0: Oh, my God. It sounds like the companies just file for bankruptcy and then the state of California taxpayers have to pay for the cleanup
1: and capping. Absolutely. And just continue on that point. Some of these wells are right up against our schools again. Specifically, three of the wells that were of high concern were right up against Arvin High School. One of them was right up against the football field where right after the leak was discovered the week after, you know, we were celebrating our graduating seniors. So we had families from all around packed into the stadiums within less than 100 feet of methane being leaked.
0: So... Who's the company that owns these oil wells?
1: Blackstone and Sunray. And uh, I believe both are the same companies that owned the wells that leaked last year from the Bakersfield community, which is about 20 minutes north of Arvon. If we were to have had the 3,200 foot buffer zone, the process would have already started of investigating all these wells, whether they were potentially abandoned or not. Those wells would have been under review. Those leaks would have most likely already been addressed. And the process of protecting our communities would have started.
0: Now we're just having to wait because the oil company is paid to put it on the ballot, basically. That's correct. Yeah. Okay. Well, it sounds like we're going to learn more about this. And this is crazy. Are they going to have to close up the ones right next to the high school if that goes into effect? Or what would happen with those that are right by the houses? Or is it just for new wells?
1: Or the referendum, the 3200-foot setback, would prevent any new wells from popping up right up against our schools, our neighborhoods, our hospitals, our clinics. And then it would create a process where existing wells would not be able to renew. So they would then begin also closing those down and capping those as well.
0: Okay. And if they're leaking, they'd have to be more responsible about that. Absolutely. Yes. We also want to learn a little bit more about how the fossil fuel industry affects our food and water. And we've been learning a little bit about produced water or the kind of recycled water that is reused after it's taken out of a well. Can you tell us about the fossil fuel industry's produced water and how that's Affecting your community?
1: Yeah, definitely. The word produced water is a little bit uh, it's a bit misleading because it makes it sound like they are in some way being generous or giving back something of value. But the process is a bit different than that. Produced water is a byproduct of the oil production. So it's also known as oil and gas wastewater. Part of the process is that once the water that they're using for oil and gas production is no longer as useful to them. They have three methods uh, generally of disposing of that oil and gas wastewater. One is that they bury it underground in abandoned injection wells. Uh, The other is that they put it in these large wastewater pits and just let it sit there, allowing it to evaporate into the air and or seeping into the ground because here in California we have unlined pits. And then the third way which you know we're going to talk about a bit more, is through irrigation of crops. And so what happens is, so the water collected is produced water and flowback. Flowback is the fluids that come back after well treatment, and then produced water is the water before the treatment. The water that is being used for irrigation initially starts out as oil and gas wastewater and flowback. That is a mixture of the innumerable number of chemicals they added including fracking fluid, and what they end up having to do before they're able to irrigate the fields is they have to start it on this process of separation uh, or this treatment. To touch a bit on what's coming back, oftentimes it's health-harming chemicals. This includes radioactive material, salts, and different kinds of heavy metals.
0: We've been learning about how it has, yes, yeah, salts, heavy metals. Do you know what happens next with it? How do they do the separation?
1: It's not in the wastewater pits. It occurs at different water districts, in this case, sometimes called the irrigators. They go through a process where they add chemicals to separate oil and other contaminants from the produced water. And then they add clean water, either groundwater or surface water, to help dilute the remaining water, making it, according to them, less harming for the farms that will be irrigated with that water.
0: Oh, so just diluting it to make it less harmful.
1: Absolutely.
0: We were hearing in the interview with Food and Water Watch, they were saying that some of these irrigation districts use just walnut shells to filter it through. Have you
1: heard that? (laughs) Yeah. And where they do this process, it seems like they line the pond with walnut shells to capture these contaminants, and then immediately send the water that remains into the canals that then feed into the neighboring farms. Some of the crops they use this on would include citruses, nuts, grapes, carrots, potatoes, or garlic. And so each one has a different irrigation method, but essentially they're all getting the same water.
0: Really? They can even do it to root vegetables?
1: Yeah, they have. Whoa. While the study that was conducted shows that it does absorb some of the metals or some of the organics. Somehow they deemed that it was not in an alarming amount.
0: And then who performed the study?
1: It was in the white paper for I'm trying to remember. Go to do do you know who did the white paper?
2: I think the white paper was by the State Water Board, so the Central Valley Regional Water Board.
0: Huh. Okay. So Do you all have community members that are working at these farms that are potentially being affected by this?
1: So far, there are five water districts that distribute this wastewater for irrigation. The farm workers that work these farms are from all over California, and I'm not even sure that the farm workers know that the fields they're working on are irrigated with wastewater. But absolutely, our community members, which are primarily farm workers, work in these fields around us. So I I don't doubt that several community members have been impacted by working in those fields.
0: It sounds like there are folks that are working in the fields, but they're not really aware of that.
1: Yeah, for the farm workers who are working in the fields that are irrigated with produced water, you know, not only are farm workers not aware of what they're being exposed to there, but the means that they're being exposed We know that this wastewater often carries harmful hydrocarbons. And according to, you know, the white paper I mentioned, they're not seeing that in the plant, which means that it's accumulating in the soil. You know, on a windy day, that that soil gets picked up. And that's what our farm workers are being exposed to is this dust with hydrocarbons on it that they're potentially breathing in and causing an unknown number of health issues. Can you tell us a little bit about what hydrocarbons
0: are?
1: Hydrocarbons are these chemicals that are often found in oil and gas production. What they do is they make one more susceptible for any number of pulmonary issues, but then also infections. And for farm workers, they're already having to be wary of the impacts of living in the valley or working in the valley. For example, you know, we have issues with valley fever and then pesticide use as well. And now this dust with hydrocarbons on it added onto it. The final thought on that is that that's already bad enough that it's something that they're exposed to. But then because dust settles on the clothes, they take that home with them and potentially expose their families to these hydrocarbons as well.
0: Here's a quick music break. back that was ripped tight vibes by atomic tide just to reiterate what you're saying is the study you were talking about earlier on the white paper that the state water board created is saying that the hydrocarbons aren't really coming up in the food but they're accumulating in the soil and then those are affecting the farm workers because they breathe them in when it gets really dry and then they bring them home am i understanding that right
1: Yes, but the white paper doesn't say necessarily that hydrocarbons are accumulating in the dirt. That's something I think is more easily inferred. Uh, in the white paper, it states that they should do some sort of soil sample, soil study to see how it impacts, you know, the farm workers, but they have not. And even acknowledging that there could be accumulating contaminants in the soil, they're still allowing these water districts to distribute or irrigate their crop with that water.
0: You said five districts. Can you tell us the different five districts and where they're located?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Primarily, they're, if not all, in the Kern County. Uh, we have Sherwood Hills, North Kern Water Storage District, Jasmine Rancho Mutual Water Company, the kern Tulare Water District, and the Coelho Water District.
0: And potentially, all the farms in those areas are using the produced water blend, or is it just some of the farms, or we don't really know?
1: Honestly, I can't say that they solely use produced water. It's probably unlikely.
0: You know, if we look up all these water districts and where they're located, if most of the farms in that region would be using this produced water, that's potentially a lot of farms.
1: Yeah, I imagine that, especially the ones along the canal that they use, would be receiving this produced water or wastewater. The five irrigators, the five water companies, Altogether amount to about 95,000 acres of farmland where wastewater or produced water is being used.
0: And then the canals would be the same canals that the clean water would be sent down to.
1: I don't know. For the Coelho District, it has its own canal, but I can't speak about the others.
0: You mentioned that it's being blended with potable water. I'm also wondering if you have any data about potable water use for oil and gas and where it's coming from. Groundwater, surface water, if it's coming from the State Water
1: Project or Central Valley Project or from your local
0: rivers?
1: So the water that they're using is primarily surface water and underground water that has the potential of being potable. From what I understand, it, they classify it as non-potable. But with increasing technology and the increasing droughts, We need to start being able to look at that non-potable water and looking at how we can turn it potable. So I think it's extremely risky using that now and making it unusable for us.
0: And so I'm wondering also about the injection wells you talked about. We've heard that that has had an effect on some of the aquifers in the Central Valley. Can you tell us about any examples in your area?
1: Yeah, absolutely. We've seen, you know, those problems with the injection wells, but then also with the wastewater ponds where because, you know, the wastewater ponds are unlined, this contaminated water seeps into the ground with the understanding that somehow it would clean itself on its way down to groundwater. However, we see that this contaminated water starts pluming towards usable water, potable water, which has some very alarming consequences. Uh, and one occasion already, we have seen that it has contaminated a farmer's well and poisoned the greater majority of their crops.
2: I can pitch in about the question about where is some of that water coming from. My colleague Kisu said that some of that comes from groundwater, and in California, this is a huge concern for us, given that we have gone through at least for the past two decades, California has had several series of droughts where there's water not available for communities to have safe drinking water. And we've seen a lot of wells go dry. So just last year alone, we had over 1,600 wells go dry across the state of California. And so it's, it's just disturbing the amount of water supply, safe drinking water supply or potable water supply. California in 2014 passed the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act. And it was really as a direct response to the use of groundwater across California. So particularly in the San Joaquin Valley region of California, it was categorized as critically overdrafted, where there was significant use of groundwater supply for different industries. But oil and gas also plays a part in that. To the extent that there's been subsidence, there's been communities going without safe drinking water due to this what I use. So there's a question there about the amount of water being used by the oil and gas industry at the expense of communities having drinking water in their homes.
0: Yeah. Do you have any data on how much water the oil and gas industry is using in the Central Valley?
1: The specific numbers, not necessarily. What we do know is that for every barrel of oil, they're using about 15 barrels of water.
0: Wow. And is that for the whole process for the refining of the oil too? Or is that just for the extraction?
1: I believe it's for the extraction.
0: And probably more oil if it's tar sands or anything like that. Mm -hmm. Okay. So there's wells going dry. And then I wanted to circle back and check in about, because we've been talking about agriculture and oil. And I'm wondering if growers have any responsibility to inform the public or their employees any chemicals they're using on site or if they're using the produced water or also to consumers?
1: They do have to inform farm workers when they're using certain pesticides, but they, to my knowledge, I don't believe they share that they're using produced water.
0: Is there any way to know if we'd be eating food that might be contaminated with produced water?
1: You would have to track down where the fruit you're eating, vegetables you're eating are coming from and see if they fall within the water districts that are using produced water.
0: Okay. Can you repeat those five districts for us again?
1: There's the Coelho Water District, the kern Water District, Jasmine Ranchos Mutual Water Company, North Kern Water Storage District, and Sherwood Hills LLC. And it's
0: Jasmine Ranchos?
1: Yeah, I see it also as Jasmine Water Company.
0: Is there somewhere we could find this list online?
1: Well, the one that I'm familiar with is the white paper.
0: And can we find that online?
1: Yes. Okay.
0: And do you have any information on what chemicals are being used in the extraction process that might show up in any of these aquifers or in agriculture?
1: The only chemicals we know to test for, you know, in the produced water is what the oil industry allows us to know. Because certain chemicals that they use, they are considered company trade secrets and are not required to share that information. So what they do share about that is to trust them that those chemicals are not in the water that is being used for irrigation. But we really have no way of knowing.
0: Just to tie it all together, I'm wondering if you can remind us Because we've talked about it a little bit in other episodes, like when we did interview the state water board, they were saying that a lot of communities are just one day away from not having clean water. And I don't know if you can quantify that in the Central Valley, just to put it into perspective, the risk that the fossil fuel industry is taking with our water.
2: Over a million people in California don't have safe drinking water. It's important to note that these communities, they're predominantly low-income communities of color. According to the Department of Water Resources, they have a median household income of less than 47000 a year. Um, so these are low-income communities of color that already face a variety of issues. There's, you know, having water that is unsafe for drinking or having water rates that are too high to pay. And then most of them are also farm worker communities that have faced a lot of institutional injustices. And we, you know, we've know we talked a lot about the oil and gas industry. So the oil and gas is a big one, but also the agriculture industry in most of these communities. The agriculture industry has dewatered a lot of wells, right, in the Central Valley region of California, because their wells go lower into the aquifer system and they're able to take up more water for their crops. Very similar to oil and gas wells, we are bigger wells that are able to go in and take more water supply. And then communities that depend on Shallow wells do not have access to that safe drinking water supply. So, these communities, they face different variety of issues, those that depend on domestic wells, those that depend on public water supplies. So, I know that for the past three years, the State Water Board has released something called a needs assessment, where they basically evaluate the state and understand the needs of, you know, different stakeholders. And what they found was Across the state for this year, I think over three hundred and forty wells public water systems are failing within the states, and then most of them, over four hundred, are potentially at risk. Be it from you know water quality issues like we're discussing, or their wells going dry. So these communities, their locations in the first place makes them subjected to a lot of injustices, environmental injustices when it comes to water quality. Groundwater quantity, or you know, water cost and affordability. I work on the agricultural groundwater quality supply of things, and the impacts are severe. Where we've had so many communities without safe drinking water, where their water supply from their faucets is coming up brown because of contamination. You know, he talked earlier about methane contamination. You know, in Kern County, but. In many of these communities, they face impacts from oil and gas industries, so B methane, and then they face unsafe drinking water from agricultural industry where they have nitrates. Some of them are facing uranium. You know, some of them are facing arsenic, all at the same time. So it, it's a pretty uh, severe and dire situation out here in California.
0: Wow, uranium and
2: arsenic. I've
0: heard arsenic can show up. Just because a well is really low, but is that what would happen with uranium? Or is that from the oil extraction process? Is that just because you're in the foothills?
2: Yeah, basically because you're in the foothills. So uranium and arsenic as a result of your activities, you get uranium mostly from being in the foothills and also from runoff from other sources into your water supply. But arsenic is the lower you go into the aquifer system, you hit arsenic. So it's an issue with your well getting dewatered. Basically, you go lower into the aquifer system and you heat arsenic. And then you have nitrates that it's directly man-made issues.
0: Once a well goes dry and has arsenic, can it ever refill and be healthy to drink again?
2: That's a good question. Once a well goes dry, this is what we've seen. Wells that went dry three years ago, most of them are still dry. So when a well goes completely dry, you'd find that most communities or most domestic well owners would have to drill a new well because it's hard to bring back the water supply, right, back to the aquifer system where they're able to tap back into. So most people would have to drill a new well or have to go further down. But I would say that the further down you go, the more concentrations you have of arsenic in regions where arsenic is prominent. Another solution that we put in place is to have more screening in those areas or to have point-of-use water treatment when the water comes out. What is the screening you're talking about? So wells usually have screening basically to limit what you're having come into the well, what you're having to suction out to protect the water that you're having come up to the surface water system.
0: Okay, so they would have better filtration and better screening.
2: They would have better filtration, but it currently costs I think like over sixty thousand to drill a new well. I might have that figure wrong, but it's really expensive to drill a new well, and now we're seeing well drilling backlogs across the states, so even for domestic well owners that would like to drill a new well because their well either has arsenic contamination or their well has been dewatered, there are no well drillers available so residents and low-income communities to be able to use the services. And then if they're available, the cost is really high for most of these communities. That's pretty shocking, actually. So I'm also wondering if you
0: have any updates for us, and or it could just catch us up to speed. We've talked with Food and Water Watch mostly about Ventura County, and they told us a little bit about Kern County and the Central Valley. But if you could kind of tell us what's going on in the Central Valley with oil refineries or any natural gas?
1: Yeah, with oil refineries here in Kern County, most recently we were able to fight off an exemption that they were seeking for a required fence line and community monitoring for crude refineries. What was occurring is that the San Joaquin Valley Air Pollution Control District, they were coming up on their deadline for setting guidelines on community air, and fence line monitoring for their refineries. And what they ended up doing is passing rule 324460, making indications of exemptions for non-crude refining refineries so they wouldn't have to monitor the air quality. And then for any refinery producing less than 40,000 barrels a day, they would not have to monitor more than four of the 16 OEHA-recommended contaminants. And being from Lamont, <laughs> I grew up next to a refinery, less than a mile north of the middle school I attended. And so being from here, and if you ask anybody, just about every other year, the refinery catches fire. Huge plumes of black smoke just carry into the air. Uh, and so to understand that they wouldn't have to monitor for all 16 contaminants I thought was was outrageous and the fact that they were looking initially looking for a complete exemption was outrageous. Thankfully we were able to put in a lawsuit against their district and were actually to win that lawsuit and then require them to monitor for all sixteen and make sure that they have the right equipment necessary to successfully monitor at the fence line and in the community. So that was a huge victory for my community. And you know, to this day we can go online and see the air quality at the middle school, which is downwind from the refinery and a number of occasions it has helped us understand the impact it has on the community,
0: just to make sure I'm understanding this is happening in your community in Lamont, and the oil refinery is really close to the school, and it catches fire at least once a year.
1: yeah, it does <laughs> have, yeah the the flare often creates this thick black smoke, but now knowing the impacts that has on the community and knowing that it's not normal and that it's actually a violation. You know, myself and several other community members have come together to keep an eye on that refinery. And on the website where we get real-time data, we report anytime we see thick black smoke or, you know, something that's out of the ordinary because it's not normal. It's not supposed to happen. And since we started reporting, we have seen it reduce in frequency. Hopefully, you know, it will stop.
0: The reason they wanted to have this exemption is just because they don't want to have to pay to monitor it and they don't care about the local community. Is that accurate or is there another reason I don't understand?
1: No, absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. I would say it's for those reasons. They have stated that they are a small company and so that they really don't produce, according to them, they don't produce enough money to cover the cost of these monitors and that they don't produce enough to have a, a significant impact on on air quality. But uh, our community would definitely beg to differ.
0: Yeah. Who owns the oil refinery?
1: The refinery is owned by Kern Oil Refining Company.
0: Do you know how much they earn annually?
1: Not off the top of my head.
0: Be interesting what they're saying isn't enough money.
1: Mm-hmm. You know, what is a small producer, you know, because... That refinery to me is huge. You know, growing up, it's been huge. And even now it's a big refinery.
0: Is there a definition of small versus large refinery?
1: I think in this occasion, they were saying since they are a small producer that produces less than 40,000 barrels, they should be exact.
0: Okay. So a large would be over Mm 40,000. Okay. Well, thanks for giving us that example. That puts it into perspective. Kind of circling back, I'm wondering about the Central Valley communities that don't have the safe drinking water. I think you already touched on it before, Godu, but if you want to put anything else into perspective about that for listeners.
2: Yeah, I can share on that a little bit more. So it was community organizing to pass the human rights to water. It passed over a decade ago, and Clean Water Action was part of the environmental organizations that worked to pass it. Basically, our organizations came together, several of us, to address this long-standing issue of communities not have safe drinking water. I want to say the pace has been slow since the human rights to water passed. The goal is ensuring that every Californian has the right to safe drinking water. But, you know, like my colleague Jesus has shared, we've seen that most of these issues are still there, have been there for decades
0: Okay. And then do you all just go out and go to people's homes and ask them about their water? How do you get people
2: involved in this project? That's a good question. So there's commonly this misconception that low-income communities do not know about their issues. And so the goal of what we do with community organizing is to uplifts their voices because community residents are the experts of their issues. You know, they know when the water from their faucets is contaminated. They know when their well goes dry. And so with our water quality program, one of which is the Irrigated Lands Regulatory Program, and then also work on the salts Program, those programs have a statutory requirement to do outreach and engagement. So basically, we advocate for door-to-door outreach going to each community, meeting residents, be it at schools, at farmer's markets, at different places where residents are, and getting input on them on their water quality conditions. And then, you know, eventually testing their wells to know what the issue is with their well. So these programs go door to door, and some of them reach out to community members through mailers, and postcards, to get information on their water quality concerns. Thanks for going into that. You were saying that
0: the water rates are really high. So, do you have any examples of some of these exorbitant water rates?
2: Sure. He says, do you have examples of water rates in your community?
1: I mean, we work a lot in the low income communities. Residents have spoken of it ranging anywhere between 80 to 120 for water. And in many of those communities, they can't use the water. That's not what they're drinking. That's what they barely use to bathe with.
0: Oh, they're having to pay for the water
2: that is brown?
1: Mm -hmm.
2: Yes. Oh my God. So I've heard in some communities that their water rates can be up to 10% of what the household median income is. And on top of that, most of them still have to depend on bottled water or hauled water or go to nearby water cursed because they can't drink the water that comes out of their faucets. Also, their kids can shower with that water or otherwise they would have rashes and, you know, get basically get sick from that water supply.
0: Wow. So these are folks that aren't on a well, but
2: are on some type of municipal system. So sometimes uh, in some cases you have them on small public water systems, which are usually less than 3,300 wells. And then some of them are dependent on domestic wells. So in some of the communities that we've visited, we've seen domestic wells where they're entirely surrounded by farms. And so you can imagine the water supply that goes into that well. It's heavy with um, fertilizers and nitrates, directly goes into their drinking water supply. So most of them can drink that water supply. And then for those that have to pay through public water systems, like small water systems, some of those water systems are also contaminated. So they still can drink the water they are paying for.
0: So could they just turn off the water? I guess then you'd have no water to shower or anything.
2: Yeah, then you have no water to shower, but most of them still depend on it because they're able to use it for some other household domestic uses. But, you know, for drinking water supply, they would still outsource that. So you have families paying both sides. They're paying for bottled water to be delivered to them or for hauled water. And then same families are paying for their public water supply. So a few years ago, I think in 2019, There was a bill that passed to give safe and affordable drinking water to communities. And so with this bill, there is funding available to most of these communities to get the hauled water or the bottled water through that program. And then the funding also is available to look at your contamination sources and, you know, in some way provide relief to them, interim relief.
0: Wow. Okay. So that's helping a little bit.
2: It's not a little bit, but with any family, you'd want a, you want a long-term safe drinking water solution.
0: Yeah, you don't want to have to go to the stores. It's just nice to turn on the tap. Well, I'm glad we have both of you looking after some of these things in the Central Valley. It sounds like there is a ton of stuff going on over there. There's
2: so many moving parts. There's still millions of people without safe drinking water. So the race is not over.
0: In closing, I'm wondering what you would like to see happen in your work, in your community, or in California, and also if there's anything you'd like to urge listeners to do.
1: Yes, absolutely. In my line of work, I would definitely want to see the oil and gas companies take responsibility for their equipment, for the pollution they produce in our communities. And I would love to have your listeners. Keep an eye out next year's election for the 3,200-foot buffer zone because, as I had mentioned before, not only is it directly impacting my community, but fence-line communities up and down the Central Valley. You know, we we are real people with these health disparities, and the 3,200-foot buffer zone will help protect our families.
2: For my line of work, I want to call attention to the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act of 2014. This is a, a bill that passed then. It was a three-part bill, but I want to call attention to it. Pay attention to what's happening within your sub-basin and hold your local agencies accountable. This bill passed close to a decade ago, and the idea is really to bring back sustainability to our states and to our groundwater aquifer systems. And Sigma is called Sigma for short. Sure. Sigma is interesting because it, it's going to cover All groundwater aspects. So, groundwater quantity aspects, you know, for communities that do not have access to drinking water, but also groundwater quality aspects, like we've shared today, be it from oil and gas industries or from agriculture. This bill is supposed to call into account all the different agencies working on this. So, I would say engage in Sigma in your local basin and, you know, join in addressing the environmental injustices that communities continue to face. California.
0: Yeah, Sigma is really pretty complicated. I'd love to interview another time about
2: that. I primarily work on Sigma, so.
0: Yeah, well, we'd love to have you back to learn more about Sigma. I guess in closing, if you can share your website so people can learn more about your work.
2: The website is cleanwater.org. So if you go to cleanwater.org and you go to California office, then you can see all the work that we do in California on our water program, our oil and gas program, Toxics and Rethink.
0: I have learned so much and I don't know if I feel better after this interview, but (laughs) it's good that we are learning about what's at stake. And yeah, I'm really inspired by both of your work. And thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us.
2: Absolutely. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us.
0: That was Jesus Alonzo and Godua Tume from Clean Water Action. Thank you so much for joining us. The views and opinions expressed in this program do not necessarily reflect the views or opinions of Save California Salmon or any entities mentioned. You've been listening to West Coast Water Justice, produced by me, Natalie Kilmer. Subscribe and listen wherever you get your podcasts. The music is from the album Now That's What I Call Surf by Tony Bald, Adam Anigias, and Danny Snyder.